I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What they inevitably and always stress experimentation. They stress the fact that they didn't dream up the right answer at the beginning and just work their way towards it. They did a ton of experiments to try and find what worked, and they found an awful lot of things that didn't work along the way. Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed, I've just found 5,000 ways that don't work. Matt Ridley is the best-selling author of books such as The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything, and his new book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt has also been an editor and writer for The Economist, The Times, and The Wall Street Journal. On this episode, Matt discusses the history of innovation and how we need to change our thinking on the subject. He talks about how some of the most transformative inventions have come to be and how innovation is a collective, collaborative phenomenon, not a matter of lonely genius. This is an episode that you definitely will not want to miss. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand... They're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Matt, welcome to What Got You There. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Sean, for having me on the show. Yeah, it's a true honor for me. I mean, I've been a large fan of your work for a number of years, and anytime I'm intrigued by someone, I'm always curious how their career began and, and what started. So I'm wondering where your career path began. Well, it's, it's always hard to do your own uh, autobiography, isn't it, and work out you know, how, how you got to where you did. But uh, uh, I, was, uh, I, I was taught natural history by my dad. I became very keen on um, you know, looking for birds' nests, watching birds, uh, all these kinds of things. And, and that got me interested in biology. I went into biology. I ended up um, doing a PhD in biology. And, and then I sort of realized I wasn't cut out for the um, hard work of concentrating on one thing for a very long time, which you need to do in research. But I loved writing, and I'd always done a lot of reading and writing. Uh, so I tried to become a journalist and uh, succeeded in becoming a science journalist and um, uh, and then a more general journalist, uh, and then that led to lots of other things. And um, uh, basically, writing is the theme throughout my career, uh, whether it's journalism, column writing, opinion writing, but also most prominently and most interestingly to me is the, is the chance to write books. And uh, I just pinch myself, you know, with at my good fortune that I can um, 
sit down and write a book on something that interests me, interview people who know about the subject, and then have someone sell the book for me and pay me to do it. You know, I, I love I love writing. How did you develop the skill? Uh, I think you're a very talented writer, and this is something you didn't even know you'd be doing at some point. So I'm wondering how you developed that skill. Well, again, it's hard to tell um, uh, how one does these things. Um, I, uh, uh, I kept a diary when I was young, and I suspect that helps. It just gets you into the habit of, of writing things. Um, I probably had a bit of a natural gift that way or interest that way, at least. I, I love language and I love reading. Um, but I think for me, the crucial thing was working for The Economist magazine for nine years, because that was a, it's a very collective experience there. What happens is that nobody's name is on any article. You write uh, a draft, it gets passed around, edited, sent back to you for rewriting. There's a huge emphasis on compression, on getting as much information in as possible while writing uh, smoothly. Um, and so it was a bit of a sort of brutal, tra- uh, you know, um, boot shop, tra- uh, boot camp training in, in how to how to write, I think. And, and I think I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about, you know, do you ever need the word very? Does, does the word very ever add anything to a sentence? <laughs> you know, or something like that. <laughs> it seems a lot can be distilled down to curiosity for you. Absolutely. I think curiosity is, is, is what it's all about. Uh, I just can't believe my luck in being alive in this extraordinary world at this moment when we know so much about the world. Uh, of course, I'm saying this in the middle of a terrible pandemic that's causing loss of life and great unhappiness and misery to lots of people. So there's a lot wrong with this world, uh, as well as a lot right with it. But, you know, to be alive, uh, at, well, for example, the uh, sequencing of the human genome happened in late 1990s, running up to the year 2000, when the first draft sequence was announced. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is the first time in four billion years that a species has read its own recipe. Um, I want to not just be alive at this moment and see it happen, but I want a ringside seat um, because this is just too interesting. Uh, And so I cooked up the idea of writing a book about the genome, which would in some way not be overtaken by events, um, which wasn't an easy thing with the the stuff developing so fast. But I hit on this idea of a a chapter per chromosome, choosing a gene for each chapter uh, that would tell some kind of a story. And that really just was an excuse for me to get to know the people who were working on the genome project and uh, become friends with some of them and and dig into the work that was going on and, and follow it very closely. Um, so you're, it's just licensed curiosity, what I do. I'm just allowed to go out and satisfy my curiosity about things that interest me. Yeah, along the lines of that, you, you have that fox approach as opposed to the hedgehog with, with wide-ranging interests. And I'm wondering, when you come across something that truly piques your interest, how do you focus on that one particular thing at that moment? It's, it's um, uh, I mean, it's, sometimes there are things you you ought to focus on, you know you focus on, but they just don't spark that much interest in you, uh, and that's tough. But if you find something um, that, that really interests you, one thing leads to another. 
And these days it's so easy. I mean, when I first wrote books, I spent a lot of time in libraries and I would read a, you know, look up a paper in a journal in the library and I would read that and I would think that's really interesting. I must make a note of that. And then I would halfway through the paper, there'd be a reference to another paper and I thought, oh, that's going to be interesting too. So I'd go and find that volume on the shelf and I'd look that up and read that and then I'd make a note of the author and I'd then you know, call them up out of the blue and say, I would really like to uh, understand what you're doing now and how you develop that work or something. Um, I do exactly the same thing now, but I never go near a library. I haven't been in a library for probably nearly 20 years because the library is at my fingertips. It's called the internet. Uh, and I find that, you know, it's this one thing leads to another. You, you know, you read something and that has a couple of links to something else, which has links to something else, which so on. And at some point in this process, you 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 send a social media message or an email to one of the authors saying, I, I really want to understand what you're saying in this paper. And I also want to know whether you've updated it. You know, so um, that's kind of the process for me. So the serendipity of that approach, we're going to talk a lot about that during this conversation but I'm wondering how you navigate that rabbit hole. You were mentioning you come across a, a new theme, a new thread. How do you know when you're going too far and you're being distracted as opposed to really distilling down some relevant, important information? Yeah, no, th th it's, a, it's, a, it's a good good question, how to avoid being distracted and uh, going down some rabbit hole that is of no use. I mean, I'm lucky because I'm my own boss. And if I decide something's interesting to me and it's interesting enough to go in the book that I've proposed, even if it's got nothing to do with the proposal that I put to the publishers a year before, um, uh, but I decide it's worth including, then I can do that. Um, if I was uh, a, you know, a reporter tasked with reporting on one subject, I couldn't go off on my own tangents, as it were. Um, but I do think you do need to give yourself a certain amount of self-discipline as a writer to stick to the to the issue at hand and occasionally I find myself getting very very interested in something and then saying look um the reader's not going to be interested in this um certainly not to the depth where I'm going into it um uh it isn't as big a scandal as you thought it isn't as interesting a discovery as you thought as you get closer to it it doesn't quite stack up um uh drop it and sometimes that means a lot of work abandoned uh, and with nothing to show for it and i think you have to know how to cut your losses as a writer uh, when avenues of exploration that you've gone down turn out to be dead ends you've researched and focused on a lot of different ideas and themes and i'd be intrigued to hear about what you think has just been for you selfishly the most satisfying and enjoyable theme that you've covered throughout your career um for me the biggest theme has been evolution by natural selection um and and it it it's it's a it's an endlessly fascinating topic because as i write my very first book was called uh, the red queen the evolution of sex uh, it was about the evolution of sex and that's just such an extraordinary subject because we don't really understand why there are two sexes and why um, male birds are more beautiful than female birds and do all the 
displaying and you know the, all these different issues that, that come with the evolution of sex and i'd i'd been studying some of those issues as an academic so it was a natural progression to do that but 25 years later i wrote a book called the evolution of everything uh, in which i argued that evolution by natural selection doesn't just happen in the biological world it actually explains how the modern human world works too uh, so that uh, for example if you take the question of how is it that uh, that everybody in london gets fed every day eats lunch you know choosing at the last minute what to eat how come there's enough food of the right kind and the right quantity in the right place at the right time um, well the answer to that is clearly that not that somebody's in charge uh, and that uh, it's dictated by a brilliant planner who knows exactly how to make sure there's enough food in the right place at the right time. Um, but that there's a there's an evolutionary process through trial and error. Different um, restaurateurs and shop owners are uh, experimenting all the time with what people want and what people don't want and where they want it and what time they want it uh, and until a rather beautiful system of immense complexity emerges by which a city feeds itself. Um, and that's exactly the same process as happens when the incredible complexity of the, of, a, of the trillions of cells inside my body and the billions of uh, different combinations of proteins and genes that, that, that run my body, uh, or indeed any other body <laughs> work, um, uh, it, it's the same phenomenon. And with that phenomenon, we had to learn, and it wasn't easy, that the complexity did not imply a designer, um, that this came about in a bottom-up gradual process of trial and error we call natural selection, and so did much of the human world. So I ended up with this argument that we are essentially still being too creationist about the human world. We're still expecting to find somebody in charge, whether it's the government, um, uh, or uh, big companies or whatever. We don't see it as an organic evolutionary phenomenon to nearly the extent that we should. Um, and I've continued this particularly in my interest in technology uh, and where technology comes from, where innovation comes from, why it happens when and where it does and why it happens to us as a species and not to others. It's very much a, a process of, of evolution by natural selection. Yeah, I think the the bottom up theme is one of those eye opening moments where you have to pause and really think through that. And the title of your new book, "How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom," and that subtitle is what really piques my interest in. And I want to pull on the thread throughout the book about freedom and the serendipity of things. You mentioned even making mistakes and experimenting. Can you just talk further on that idea about the experimentation and serendipity of things? Yes, uh, if you uh, if you go and read what inventors said about the process by which they came up with inventors and particularly innovators. And the distinction I make between innovation and invention is that innovators are the people who turn inventions into practical realities that are affordable and sustainable and, and available to people. Um, uh, and often that's a lot harder than coming up with the original prototype. Um, if you go and listen to what these people say about the process by which they reached uh, some uh, outcome like you know the airplane the Wright brothers or um, uh, vaccines or whatever it might be um, they 
inevitably and always stress experimentation. They stress the fact that they didn't dream up the right answer uh, at the beginning and just work their way towards it. Uh, they uh, did a ton of experiments to try and find what worked, and they found an awful lot of things that didn't work along the way. Um, Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed, I've just found 5,000 ways that don't work, which is rather a nice way of putting it. And, and uh, Edison literally tried 6,000 different types of plant material for the filament of a light bulb before he hit upon Japanese bamboo. And he understood very much that this innovation process wasn't a matter of genius. It was a wasn't a, wasn't a matter of inspiration. It was a matter of perspiration, as he put it. You know, you just had to put in the hard hard work and the long hours. Um, uh, but you need the freedom to experiment. That's the crucial point. This is where it comes back to freedom. If for, for, for lack of money or lack of uh, license, lack of regulatory approval, uh, you can't just keep trying things and failing, um, uh, then you're not going to have an innovatory economy. Um, it really does come back down to this. And just back to the sort of creationist, the, the, the top down versus bottom up view of the world. I tell the story of um, uh, at the beginning of at the end of the year 1903, two different attempts to develop powered flight one of which had a lot of government funding and had gone to a very prestigious institution with a very grand chap in charge who was being very secretive about his work, um, about the details of his work, and who launched his new aeroplane with a huge crowd watching uh, with a lot of publicity, um, and it completely flopped. He was called Samuel Langley. It was done on the banks of the Potomac River in, in Washington, and um, he had just gone about it the wrong way. He designed everything together at once without trying it out. Uh, he'd not really listened to anyone else. Um, he'd thought of himself as the heroic inventor. Uh, he'd spent a ton of money, uh, and the thing literally stalled in midair and dropped into the ice-filled river, and the uh, pilot, who had a cork-lined uh, life jacket on, um, showing that he probably didn't think it was going to work, <laughs> Um, had to swim to the shore. Just 10 days later, on a lonely beach in North Carolina, two bicycle mechanics uh, took to the air with powered flight for the first time. And they did so after years and years of experiments with gliders, in which they'd constantly adjusted and readjusted their designs in the light of experience. Um, and they'd used wind tunnels and things like that and they'd they'd put together the different elements you know the wings the tails the engine separately you know they tested them all separately and this was finally bringing everything together they'd left the engine to last because they figured that was the easy bit it was just all it needed to do was provide some power um, but even that proved to be very difficult because it had to be lightweight um, so they'd had to design it from scratch um, and, and of course they weren't believed literally for, for about several years nobody believed the wright brothers they were they were called frauds and cranks and uh, there were all these articles in the scientific magazine saying if you think that it's likely that two humble bicycle mechanics from ohio have cracked this problem that even the great samuel langley head of the smithsonian institution couldn't crack uh, then you're an idiot um and we keep hearing rumors that they're flying 
around Dayton, Ohio for miles at a time. These can't be true, because if it was true, uh, we'd have been able to report on it by now. Well, why not go and look? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lovely it's a lovely story, that. I mean, it's terribly well known. But my point is that again and again, it's the same story, whether it's the light bulb or the aeroplane or the search engine uh, or artificial intelligence, whatever it might be, right up to date. Uh, it's again and again, it's the same. It's the freedom to experiment that is the absolute crucial ingredient of innovation you bring up another thing that's just endlessly fascinating and that's just the inevitability that these technologies come along at a certain time why is that isn't that fascinating oh, uh, endlessly <laughs> fascinating it's, it's it's one of those things i could wrestle with all day kevin kelly explores many examples of this in his book what technology wants and uh you know um pretty well every technology has several people independently inventing it around the same time. Again, the light bulb gives the best example because you can uh, document 21 different people who came up with the idea of the light bulb as a glass bulb with a vacuum in it and a filament through which electricity is passing uh, independently. There was Swan in England, there was Edison in America, there was Lodigan in Russia, and so on and so on. So there's something about the 1870s that means that it's impossible to get through that decade in Western economies without somebody inventing the light bulb. You know, it doesn't matter how many people you run over. You know, you, you, uh, Edison falls under a tram, Swan is, uh, is run over by a horse, uh, and we still would have had light bulbs, you know. And the same thing in the 1990s. Um, there are lots of people inventing search engines, Google ends up scooping the pool. Uh, it's tremendously inevitable. It doesn't, you know, if Sergey Brin had never met Larry Page, we'd still have search engines. You know, search engines were in a, in a sort of unbelievably obvious way now, the main sort of way you were going to um, organize the internet and the way you were going to make money out of the internet. But here's the interesting thing. However inevitable these things look in retrospect, and they're sort of ripe in the sense that the combined technologies that you need to combine to make them come together at that time, however inevitable they look in retrospect, nobody saw them coming. And if you go back to the 1980s and say, right, who's predicting search as a key ingredient of the internet? Almost nobody. They're all what you can dig out one or two somewhat prescient remarks but they're a bit confused. And even the people who invented search engines didn't realize that that's what they were doing. I mean, Page and Brin did not set out to invent a search engine. They set out to catalog the internet. And they only slowly realized that what they had developed was a device that would, would uh, monetize the internet very effectively through advertising. Um, so there's an extraordinary asymmetry here. As we look forward, we can't see these moments of ripeness, of inevitability in technology coming. But as we look backwards, we can see them very clearly. Um, and by the way, this applies to scientific discovery as well as technological innovation. Um, uh, you know, if Darwin had uh, not written The Origin of Species, Wallace would have discovered natural selection. Indeed, he did. Uh, if Einstein had not thought of special relativity, Hendrik Lorentz would have done. The, the, it, the, you reach a point when the ideas are coming together, 
that you just can't help but stumble on the next one. Uh, and But you have to go through the process of those preliminary ideas to get there and those preliminary technologies. How with technology today, social media, this, this connected world, how do your thoughts around that change moving into the future? Do you think it becomes easier to predict the next innovations? I don't think it's any easier to predict, no. Um, I mean, I think it's easier to invent um, because you can tap into an idea that someone has had in Shanghai 10 minutes ago um, uh, to combine with the idea that somebody else has had in Chicago uh, three minutes ago and put them together right now, which was not an option available to your ancestor 100 years ago. He would have had to wait for a letter from... Uh, some part of the world, uh, and he'd have been jolly lucky to be able to track it down. So it must be easier to bring together ideas, as I put it, to enable ideas to have sex um, than ever before. Um, uh, But it doesn't seem to be any easier to predict where the next technological breakthrough is coming. I'll give you an example of, of, of how difficult technology is to predict. I mean, there are lots of examples of very clever people making very stupid remarks about the future. Um, uh, But if you go back to the 1950s and you look at what they thought the future was all about, they thought it was all about transport breakthroughs. They thought it was uh, personal personal gyrocopters, uh, uh, supersonic travel, routine space travel, um, jetpacks for postmen, things like that. Um, They hardly mentioned communication and computers at all in a lot of these futurology uh, things. And the reason they thought that was because the previous 50 years had all been about spectacular breakthroughs in transport. Uh, I mean, I often think that my grandparents were born before the motor car and the airplane, but they died with men on the moon and supersonic jets in the air. Lived through the most unbelievable changes in transport, whereas I have lived through almost no changes in transport at all. I mean, I flew on a 747 last year. That's a, that's a plane that was that entered service in 1969. Imagine using a computer that, that was invented in 1969. It would look very different. So, um, uh, whereas my par- my grandparents, again, although their transport experience had changed, their communication change, experience had changed very little. They, they were born after the telephone and they died with the telephone. Um, so... Uh, I suspect the next 50 years are not going to be about communication and computing to the extent that we think they will. We're thinking about artificial intelligence uh, and the effects of the internet and so on today. Um, But it's possible that the next 50 years we'll see enormous breakthroughs in biotechnology um, uh, that we are not really expecting, for example. I'm curious who's going to be the one to bring these to light. I, I know you've written in the past about these innovators. They tend to be outsiders, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. No, one of the fascinating features uh, of innovators is that uh, it, it often is the the maverick, the outsider who who comes up with, with, with the best ideas. Um, not always. One shouldn't rule out the possibility that a um, Harvard-educated um, guy is going to solve a problem Um, but to a surprising extent ever since if you go back to the the longitude prize in britain in the 1700s um they just they refused to give it to this guy john harrison because he was a humble humble clockmaker from yorkshire 
you know, uh, I'm sorry, you know, this was supposed to be, this is a prize to, to, to work out longitude when you're at sea. Um, and uh, uh, the, this was supposed to be a brilliant astronomer or a mathematician who was going to solve this problem, not a chap who just built very good clocks that would work even in the roughest storms, which is what he did. I'm wondering, with everyone being connected then, I, I know you've written in the past about how Tasmania, about 10,000 years ago, when they got disconnected from Australia, they lost access to the flow of ideas, and now everyone's so connected. Is it less about the flow of ideas and being able to filter out the most important and distill down those ideas? I think, yeah, the Tasmanian example is is very nice because it 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 shows how not only you get cut off if you get cut off from ideas you don't get ideas that happen along a long way away and in a, a different place you, you know you can't import them um but also you end up with a small population disinventing things they had to give up technologies because they just didn't have a big enough population to keep the specialized skills alive that's obviously not an issue today. Most people are living in big enough societies to keep skills alive, even if they get a bit cut off from the rest of the world. And most of us are not cut off. As you say, we're able to draw upon this incredible network of brains uh, that are applying themselves to problems all over the world. Um, uh, and, uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose, uh, I guess, uh, if you're an in innovator. You know, it's it's the problem is too much information coming at you from all sides. And we all know the experience of uh, people trying to force great new ideas on their friends. You know, please, can you take this seriously? You know, this guy's a genius. It's going to solve the world's problems. And it's going to, all you need is a little bit of a cup of water and you can make enough fuel to drive an airplane um and uh you know you have to sort of gently explain the second law of thermodynamics and say this isn't going to work and in the back of your mind is this slight worry that you you know you may be uh wrong and this guy may be right <laughs> and uh, the maverick genius <laughs> um uh but i think what there is still a surprising lack of is people looking outside their own silos. Um, so that people look within their own disciplines, within their own technologies for the solutions, when they should go out and study something completely different that would give them uh, an insight. Um, there's a recent study of, uh, uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a sort of website called Innocentive, which is where people, people or companies or organizations can post problems and say, does anyone have an idea how to solve this? Uh, and I'll pay you if you, if you do. And there was a study of this site and of the, the, the many successful projects that have happened as a result of it. Um, uh, and it found that the solutions were on the whole coming from people from a surprisingly long di distance away in terms of, different technologies in other words it really was the outsiders to a field who were solving the, the the problems for people um uh and so i think we haven't we we're still building a world that is too balkanized into um you know this is biology this is chemistry this is uh, the digital world um uh, uh and not 
cross-fertilizing enough. That's, that's the limiting factor, is cross-fertilization. That cross-fertilization is something I'm truly intrigued by. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners who, who listen to the show, and we want to create more innovative companies. And I'm wondering how we should approach that and the lens you're looking through about getting that outside perspective. Any insights or advice you have there? Well, um, I'm one of these people who um, tells stories about what has happened in the world, uh, and um, I'm not necessarily very good at turning that into how to make 10 million bucks myself um, from doing it. If I was, I'd have done it, and I wouldn't be bothering to write books about it, <laughs> I guess. So uh, I'm not necessarily the most practical uh, person here. But here's a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, I've, I've had several conversations with Jeff Bezos about this issue. Uh, and one of the things I asked him one day was, um, how do you keep Amazon innovative when you're such a large organization? How do you stop becoming a sclerotic and uh, um, uh, sort of uh, anti-innovation organization as so many big companies do become? Um and he's very alive to this question, and he may not be entirely succeeding. You know, Amazon might be becoming a great big um, dinosaur eventually. But one of the answers he gave me was very interesting. I hadn't thought of it like this before. Um, he said, in most organizations, if somebody has an idea, a group of people meet and they discuss it. And if most of them think it's a bad idea, then it goes no further. But he said, in my organization, I've got a rule that if one of those people in that meeting, uh, even in the minority, thinks it's a good idea, then it has to be reported to another level in the organization. It's a sort of a reverse veto. You know, it's like a jury where one juror says, no, I think he's not guilty, uh, in which case, you know, the for some reason, there's a requirement for unanimity on this jury. Um, so there's a requirement for unanimity to reject a, an idea uh, within Amazon. If there's no unanimity, then it has to be referred upwards so that people like Jeff at the top of the organization get to hear about it. And I think that's a way of keeping um, the maverick stuff flowing to the people who take the decisions. Uh, and I suspect that's a um, quite an important entrepreneurial secret. Because if you look at the history of Amazon, it's a history, it's a, it's a story of blunder after blunder and mistake after mistake and bad bet after bad bet, and yet it's ended up the biggest company in the world and the most successful and the very definition of uh, online e-commerce. Um, uh, and, you know, Bezos submits this and he says, if you're not rolling the dice, if, well, sorry, there's a baseball metaphor he uses. I'm not very good at baseball, but if you're not swinging uh, at every ball and you're not going to hit it or something, you'll have to um, explain what that means to me. He, he's a, a truly generational type thinker. And I, I'm curious who some of the mavericks, the thinkers, the change makers you've most admired throughout your research. <laughs> well, there's so many. It's it's difficult in some ways to to, to pick out some, um, but part of my uh, story, part, part of what I'm trying to do is downgrade the individual, uh, and I tell a lot of stories about individuals and how they achieved innovations, which is uh, and and yet I'm also trying to make it clear that they are just 
part of a network. And so I think the story that 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 in in my book that left most of an imprint in my memory, um, because in a way it doesn't involve a hero, uh, is the story of the insecticide-treated bed net, which has turned out to be the technology that has done most to stop malaria increasing and start it dramatically decreasing over the last 20 years. And it's done so because it's been championed by the Gates Foundation. But I tried to, I, I set out to find out where does this insecticide-treated bed net idea came, come from? You know, I mean, who invented it? Who's the genius behind it? And uh, eventually traced it back to a very simple little sort of Xeroxed report uh, written about an experiment done in uh, Burkina Faso in 1983 by some French and Burkina Faso uh, scientists who were uh, who literally just set up 36 huts, uh, each of which was designed as a mosquito trap as well as a, an ordinary hut made of local materials um, uh, in uh, uh, just a normal part of Burkina Faso in West Africa. Um, and uh, measured every, counted every mosquito that came in and went out of each hut. And there were volunteers sleeping in each hut. Some of them had mosquito nets and some didn't. Um, some of the mosquito nets were treated with insecticide and some weren't. Some had holes in the nets and some didn't because most mosquito nets end up having holes in them after a short period in practice. So they wanted to know if that made a difference. And the results were astonishing. You know, just adding mosquitoes insecticide to a mosquito net was a huge deterrent to mosquitoes and killed a lot of them and it didn't matter if there were holes in the net uh, and so it's a, you know, this is a cheap technology um, uh, that nobody had really thought of in this way it was a beautiful experiment I got in touch with Frederick Dariat one of the the scientists who who did this work uh, and asked him how it had came, come about. Unfortunately, he didn't speak English. My French isn't very good, but we we, we had a, an email conversation for a few weeks. And uh, and uh, for me, that was a, uh, it's the very, you know, he's not a household name. He's, he's not been given the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, but that's kind of my point. Um, it, it's, it's someone like, it's anonymous people like him who really are the heroes of my book. That's why I love the serendipity of these conversations. This will be listened to all over the world, and you never know what idea this will spark. Uh, Matt, this truly has been so informative. Like I mentioned, your work has been instrumental in, in my thinking and my thought processes. The new book, How Innovation Works, is out May 19th. Anywhere else the listeners should be staying connected with you, checking out any parting words you'd like to instill? Well, I collect all my journalism and videos and other things on uh, my website, which is uh, mattridley.co.uk or rational, sorry, mattridley.com or rationaloptimist.com. It effectively leads to the same website. Um, uh, and I'm on Twitter as Matt W. Ridley. Well, all that will be easily linked up in the show notes. But Matt Ridley, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Sean, thanks for some really interesting questions. It's It's been a, been a pleasure. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.